Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. My name is Stephen Jones. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are not in Ecclesiastes 2 yet, go ahead and open uh, there. That's where we're going to be this morning. Well, I was asked to give a brief update before I, we get into the text on just what's going on in the world of the Mankato church plant. So Candeo Church is planting a church up in Mankato this upcoming fall. And the elders have asked my wife and I, yeah, there's a clap, that's great, uh, to spearhead that effort, which we are very excited about. And it has been an incredible uh, summer as we've been giving our time fully to preparing for that. So we started a connection group this summer. There are now 15 of us from Candeo meeting regularly who are all planning on moving, which is incredible. Great. Hey, let's just get that out of the way now during the Mankato update rather than God's word. No. Uh, so there's 15 of us meeting that are all planning on moving, which is awesome. There's actually already two of our core team members living in Mankato, kind of paving the way for us, which is exciting. Um, this Thursday, I actually had the chance to go up there and meet with six pastors in the community and have lunch with them and share what God has put on our heart uh, for the community to plant a church to reach students that would be multi-generational. And it was incredible. It was kind of like the dream lunch that you'd have where you hope, man, I hope the pastors in this community see our vision and receive us and are excited. And it was exactly that. They could not have been more excited for us, more supportive. There were multiple denominations there, you know, but they were all, they could all see the clear need in their community for a church to be engaging the campus. And so it was awesome to meet them. There are some great churches in Mankato, but it is obvious to everyone there and everyone who does research on the community that there is a huge need for another church to be in the community to engage the campus. So that was an incredible, incredible lunch. Uh, we now have a staff team, which is amazing. So we've got Mason and Megan Van Beek coming up. Mason will be our community ministry leader. We've got Max and Ashley Jurgens joining us. Max will be our salt company director. And then Luke and Laura Lawson are joining us. And Luke, you've seen him leading worship the past couple months. Uh, he will be our worship leader. So we could not be more excited for the team that God is forming, the relationships that he's already starting for us and clearly going ahead of us as we begin to prepare to launch. If you want to know more about Mankato, why we chose that location, some of the, our vision behind it, we are actually going to have an information meeting next Sunday, October 1st. You can see it in your program at 1145. So if you're a normal first service person, you might need to go grab some brunch, come back. But 1145, up in the, up in the garage, uh, we will have an information meeting. This is for everyone. It's not just for people who think that they're moving. It is anyone who wants to learn more about the church plant, how you can pray, how you can support us, how you could even consider if, if God would move you there. So October 1st, 1145, come hear more about the plant, and it will be a great time. Well, Ecclesiastes 2 is where we're at this morning. Let me ask you this. If somebody asked you, how can I be happy? How would you answer that? Right? It's a simple question. It's one of the most basic questions for us as humans. How can I be happy? What is the path towards happiness? And it's one of the most common themes in our human experience. There's movies after movies that explore this theme. There's books after books, articles after articles, trying to answer the question, how can I be happy? In fact, I saw one of the strangest movies I've ever seen a few years ago that was all about this theme of happiness. 
It was a serious drama called The Big Year, starring Steve Martin, Jack Black, and Owen Wilson, and it was about competitive bird watching. I promise there was not a single joke in the entire movie. It, I think the joke was that it was a serious drama about a bird watching competition. Um, kind of hilarious, like meta comedy. It was great. But it's this strange movie about bird watching. So, what the big year is, is a, a competitive bird watcher would try to document as many unique species of birds as they possibly could from January 1st to December. 31st. And the movie follows these three guys who their lifelong dream was to be the greatest birder of all time. Birding is what competitive bird watchers called bird watching, birding, okay? So they all go, they start this competition. One is a retired guy and he uses his retirement to fund his, his competition. One is kind of a loser who just goes through credit card after credit card trying to fund this com competition. The other is the greatest already, but wants to continue to be the greatest. And he is ruining his family in his pursuit of bird watching. Again, there's not a single joke in this whole movie. It is a serious drama. But it's very clear that to each of these guys, they believed that they would be happy if they could make the front page as the, of the magazine for bird watching as the greatest bird watcher ever. That was their definition of what will make me happy. Now, how does it end? I am going to spoil it. If you haven't heard of the big year at this point, you were never going to watch it. So here we are. The two guys who end up losing, they end up happy. And the guy who wins ends up miserable. Why? Well, the two guys who end up losing about like maybe let's say October, November of the year, they begin to realize if they were going to win this thing, they would have to ruin their life. So they realize this and they drop out of the competition, but in the end, they are happy because they have friendships and families that are intact. And that is what is truly, what truly makes you happy. Great friendships and family. The other guy, he sacrifices everything, ruins his marriage, ruins his life. He wins the competition, but is alone and miserable. Now, for the big year, how does the big year answer what makes you happy? Well, the answer for the big year is, friendships, and family. That's what makes you happy. You could do this in all sorts of movies, all sorts of books, and go through, how, are, how is this movie answering what makes you happy? We are all trying to answer that. How can I have meaning? How can I have fulfillment? And this is what Ecclesiastes is exploring this morning. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is exploring what gives life meaning, what gives life fulfillment. So Jake introduced us to the book last week, and he pointed out to us that this is a very unique book. To understand it and to interpret it correctly, you need to understand that there are two primary characters. There's the teacher and there's the narrator. The teacher is t looking at the world through a secular lens, the eyes of a skeptic. He's saying if all there is in life is life under the sun, no eternity, no God, what is the point of life? Where do we find meaning? Grab a handheld. Okay, yep, that's a good idea. Let's just take care of this now. Six. Oh, okay. Handheld time. Let's do this. So the teacher, he's looking at the world through a secular lens. He's exploring 
what does life mean if there is no God? Now, the narrator will come in a few times and give summaries to his conclusions. Now, the secular teacher, he looked at the world first last week through the lens of wisdom and intellect, trying to find meaning and purpose through wisdom and intellect. And his conclusion was it's futile. It's meaningless. It's a meaningless pursuit. And now he's going to turn his attention to happiness, to pleasure. Maybe this is where I can find meaning in my life. So here's where we're going this morning in Ecclesiastes 2. First, the pursuit of pleasure. Second, the failure of pleasure. And then lastly, a path towards happiness. So the pursuit of pleasure, the failure of pleasure, and then the path towards happiness. Now, we read Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11. I'm actually gonna start in verse one, just to give a little bit of context. The teacher actually sets up his exploration of pleasure at the beginning of chapter two. So here's what he says in verse one. He said, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. So the teacher's testing meaning. Wisdom and intellect in it provide fulfillment in a meaningful life. Maybe pleasure will, right? He's saying maybe the purpose of life isn't to know as much as I possibly can. Maybe it's just to enjoy life. And this seems really plausible to us. The purpose of life, just enjoy it. This life short, just enjoy life. This seems like a plausible purpose in our life. It's what our culture tells us. It's what a lot of our lives are built on. We think, hey, there's nothing wrong with trying to enjoy life, to build a life for my family, to get into a comfortable house, to keep my kids close by, to get a few promotions, enjoy a few concerts, have a great vacation, be set up for retirement, enjoy life, take it easy. It seems like a plausible path towards meaning and purpose. But what does the teacher say? He's gonna, he says, I'm going to test pleasure. I'm going to enjoy life. Let's see if this is where meaning is found. Now, to do this, he's going to test pleasure in a few different, by a few different approaches. The first approach that he attempts is what we'll call the good timer approach. The good timer. Look at verses two through three. It says, I said about laughter, it is madness. About pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body. My mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life. The good timer. Laughter. Hey, just relax. He tested wine. How does this affect my body? How does this affect my mind? He grasped at folly. What is folly? It's pure foolishness. It's college parties. It's a group of guys doing stupid stuff. This is the first test. I'm going to try to enjoy life by being a good timer. The life of the party. I'm gonna drink some wine. I'm gonna laugh a lot. I'm gonna do some stuff that I'll regret in the morning. Here's what the good timer is thinking. I am just going to take life easy. Hakuna Matata. I'm not hurting anyone, just enjoying life. I work for the weekend, but what does he discover? Well, he says, laughter, it's madness. Pleasure, it's futile. And look at what he says in verse three. He says, until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life. 
What is he realizing about the good timer lifestyle? It's a waste. There's no utility in it. The party lifestyle is a waste. Life is short and partying is a waste of time. So he changes tests. He changes approaches. He's still testing pleasure, but he's going to go at pleasure from a different angle. Look at verse four. Here he's changing from the good timer approach to what we will call the refined achiever. Here's verse four. It says, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. Partying wasn't doing it for him. So he tries to enjoy life in a more refined way. He builds houses, plants vineyards. He makes gardens and parks, plants every fruit tree imaginably. He sets up an amazing irrigation system. And for the teacher, these weren't just raised garden beds in your backyard. These were incredible gardens and parks. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon and Solomon had an amazing kingdom. He wasn't just building a suburban house. He was building a kingdom, amazing gardens, amazing parks, a kingdom that was astounding. We're told that he took 13 years to build his house compared to seven for the temple. There wasn't a fruit tree he didn't, that he knew that wasn't planted in his kingdom. He was enjoying life by cultivating and constructing the greatest kingdom imaginable. He continues, verse seven. I acquired male and female servants. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Solomon had servants and slaves. If at any moment there was something that he wanted, he could snap his fingers and it was done. There wasn't a single chore that he ever had to do. He had power. Not only that, he owned livestock more than all before him. Here's a guy who could eat any fruit that he wanted. He could have any meat that he wanted. He could have someone prepare it for him, the greatest meal that you could get in Jerusalem. Whatever he wanted, he could have. Verse eight, I also amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. He was rich beyond imagination, silver, gold, but he wasn't just cash rich, he had treasures, art, jewels, precious artifacts, the treasure of kings. You would come into his kingdom, to his palace, and be amazed at the artifacts that he had collected. He continues in verse eight, I gathered male and female singers for myself. He was personally entertained every night of the week. Taylor Swift on Monday, Metallica on Tuesday, Chris Stapleton on Wednesday, probably another country artist on Thursday because let's hear it for country. Man, last week, I was a little thrown off. You know, I was sitting there, I was like, man, Jake is describing my perfect day. Folgers, country, fast food, let's go. So there wasn't a single night where he was bored. He would have the greatest artist headlining in his home every night of the week. The greatest artist in Jerusalem putting on a personal concert for him. Not only that, 
Verse eight continues, and many concubines, the delights of men. In 1 Kings 11, we're told that Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. There were a thousand women that he had access to. There was not a single sexual experience that he did not experience. There was not a single sexual desire that he was not able to fulfill. There was no desire he was denied. The teacher Solomon achieved every possible way you could imagine experiencing pleasure in this life. And what was the result? Verses nine and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. Solomon was in one of the smallest percentiles of human history. Wealth, power, there wasn't a single pleasure he denied himself. He tried it all. See, you and I are often limited in our pursuit of pleasure by our resources or time, but not Solomon. Anything he could think of, he tried. He pursued pleasure and got to the end of the path. He had tried every human experience to its fullest. Now let's think about the approaches that he took, the good timer and the refined achiever. The refined achiever, vineyards, building projects, gardens, treasures, art, entertainment, sex, the good timer, laughter, wine, and folly. Both are a pursuit of pleasure. They might look different, but both are a pursuit of happiness. Now, why is this important? Well, if I asked you, hey, are you pursuing happiness in the things of this world? You know the right answer is no. So you'd probably say, no, no, I don't, I don't do that. And what you might say is, hey, I'm not drinking or doing drugs or, or partying on the weekends, but you don't realize that you are pursuing pleasure through your work projects, home improvement, and collectibles. Or you might object and say, no, 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 I'm not trying to climb the corporate ladder. I'm not materialistic. I'm just trying to enjoy life. Take it easy. Maybe you don't party on the weekends, but you watch hours of HGTV daydreaming about the perfect kitchen. Maybe you aren't a workaholic, but you're on Airbnb constantly looking for the next escape, the next great adventure. Maybe you don't have a thousand physical concubines, but you have millions of digital ones. Maybe you don't have servants, but you daydream about the corner office where you'd finally have assistance doing all the work that you don't want to do. You see, all of us are pursuing pleasure. We all are looking at things in this world to fill a void. We might be the good timer or we might be the refined achiever, but we are all looking at things in this world so that we can enjoy life. What is it for you? What, if you are honest, do you believe will finally make you happy? What is the one thing that you are convinced if you had, you would be happy? What is the one thing that if you lost, you aren't sure you'd be capable of joy? You aren't sure life would be worth living for. How do you answer, how can I be happy? 
Here's the promise of pleasure, happiness. But here's the problem. Look at verse 11. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The teacher looked at all of these tests, all of his attempts to find happiness, and what is his conclusion? Futile, meaningless. I came up empty. He describes it as chasing the wind, a pursuit of the wind. Now think about wind. You can experience wind, you can feel it, but you can't catch it. You can't keep it. All of these pleasures, Solomon, the teacher, is saying are wind. Sure, in the moment, the wine was good. The laughs were fun. The sex was great. The kingdom amazing, but it was wind. He felt it. He experienced it, but he couldn't keep it. It was gone. So what did he do? He married another princess. He built another garden. He got a new treasure. He had more food. He had more concerts. But what happened every time? Wind. He felt it. He experienced it, but he couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep the high. He couldn't keep the pleasure. And we've all experienced this. We've gone to a great concert. We've had a great meal. We've had an exhilarating sports event, a first kiss, an epic movie. But what happens? Wind. We experience it. We feel it and then it's gone. And we begin to crave more and more. I have to chase that. Tim Keller in a sermon on Ecclesiastes 2 points out that this guy, the teacher, is in the 99.9999 percentile of human history. And he's telling us it's empty. He got all the way to the top and it's empty. It's wind. And yet, if we are honest, we don't believe him. We say, hey, hey, Teacher, I'll take your word for it, but let me run the test. You're probably doing it wrong. Tim Keller points out that when we are unhappy, most often what we believe is we just haven't gone down the path of pleasure far enough. Well, the reason I'm unhappy is I haven't gotten to this level or I haven't experienced this high. But here's a guy who got to the end of the path and he's miserable. And we have example after example of this in modern day. From celebrities being admitted to rehab to sports superstars being disillusioned, we hear stories and all of us think they aren't doing it right. If I had that much money, I'd blah, blah, blah. But here's what the teacher and everyone who has made it to the end of the path has found. It's wind. This isn't where meaningness and happiness are found. A few chapters later in Ecclesiastes 6, this is what the teacher will say. In 6, 7, he'll say, all of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What is he saying? All of your labor is motivated by your stomach, by your desire for pleasure, but the appetite is never satisfied. This is the cruel joke of trying to enjoy the things of the world, about trying to find pleasure. It never satisfies. And this is how addiction happens. 
In order to achieve the same high, I need more stimulus and more stimulus and more stimulus, and then I'm addicted. Addicted to a substance, to pornography, to work, to gambling, to whatever. The appetite is never satisfied. One of the most haunting pictures of this we get in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Captain Barbosa and his crew steal the Aztec gold and they get this curse on them. And he's explaining to Elizabeth Swanson how this curse works. And he says this, and no, I'm not gonna use a pirate voice. I'm just gonna read it. Do a pirate voice in your head. There be a chest. No, no, <laughs> that's, just, that's just weird. All right, here's what Captain Barbosa says. He says, there be the chest, inside be the gold. And we took them all. We spent them and traded them and frittered them away on drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths and all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. What is the teacher telling us? We have the same curse as Captain Barbosa. We exhaust our resources on drink and food and pleasurable company only to realize the appetite is never satisfied. The drink doesn't satisfy, the food turns to ash, and all the pleasurable company in the world can't slake our lust. It's wind. You can feel it, you can experience it, but you can't keep it. Now, the tragedy of the pursuit of pleasure is not just that it fails to deliver its promise of meaning, but that it also costs you. The more we crave, the more we are willing to give up. Our pursuits of pleasure begin demanding longer hours at the office at the expense of our kids. It begins costing us more to get better seats at the concert. The drinking and partying begins to have longer-term impacts on our health. The sex and pornography begin to destroy your relationships with your friends and family. This is where our pursuit of pleasure becomes an idol. When we are willing to sin in order to get it or protect it. And both the good timer and the refined achiever are guilty of this. Both in their own way are willing to sin in order to get the happiness they long for. How does this happen? Well, when you sense a void and happiness in your life, you become incredibly susceptible to sin. Discontentment is a dangerous place to be. Matt Carter is a pastor, and he pointed out that this is exactly when the devil comes and whispers things like this. Hey, you had a long day at work. You came home to crying kids, an unappreciative wife. What's a little pornography? What's another drink? You kind of deserve it. Or maybe you begin to justify things by saying things like, if I can just get this promotion, I'll be able to provide the lifestyle I always dreamed of for my family. My kids will understand the missed birthday parties, the missed sports events, being an absent parent. You get married and seven, 13, 20 years in, you begin to realize this marriage thing is not what they promised. And so you end up like 50% of the other married, married couples in a divorce, disillusioned by love. 
Pursuing pleasure for its sake becomes an idol when we are willing to sin in order to get it or protect it. Pleasure promises the life you always wanted. It promises happiness. It promises a meaningful life. But in the end, it's wind. And in the end, it costs you. Pleasure fails. So what do we do? Well, I imagined if I asked you before this sermon, hey, do you think materialism and finding happiness in the things of this life is the path to true happiness? I'd imagine you say no, right? This isn't new stuff to us. We know, hey, this, the things of this world aren't gonna provide true happiness for me. But yet, here we are, obsessing about better homes, better paychecks, better lifestyles, the better job, the better sex, the better, the better vacation, We know these things don't bring ultimate happiness, and yet we still test them. We still put pleasure to the test. How do we break free from this? Well, I want to suggest a path towards happiness. Now, there's a couple different strategies people take when it comes to achieving true happiness, contentment. There's what we could call the Buddhist strategy. In Buddhism, you deny yourself any desire that you have. You pursue a life of aestheticism and you deny, you suffocate your desire for pleasure and that's how you have contentment. But that's not the Christian resource towards true contentment. You see, your problem is not that you want to be happy. Your problem is not that you want to experience pleasure. The problem is where you are looking for it. It's the source. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, your problem isn't that you want pleasure. Your problem is you're looking in all the wrong places. So what is the source? Well, here's what Psalm 1611 says. It says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. The path of life is found in God. And what, he, what is he offering you? He's offering you abundant joy, eternal pleasures. If you are in Christ, the key to happiness is not to ignore your circumstances and try to be happy regardless of your circumstances. No, if you're in Christ, the key to happiness is to remember your circumstances, to remember that God is good, that in his presence there's abundant joy and eternal pleasures. You see, God created you to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You were created for pleasure. The problem isn't that we want happiness. The problem is that we've rejected the source of happiness. We've rejected God. Not only were Adam and Eve tempted to pursue knowledge apart from God, they were also tempted to pursue pleasure outside of God. And they and all of us have rejected delighting in God and turned to created things to find happiness, joy, and fulfillment. But here's what God is offering you. He is offering you eternal pleasures, abundant joy, the joy, happiness, and fulfillment that you've always longed for. Now, how can he offer us that? Well, when it comes to the idol of pleasure, 
What, what is the path towards that? It says, sacrifice on my behalf and then you can be happy. But God looked at us and he said, I will sacrifice on your behalf so you can be happy. The only way God could offer you eternal pleasures is if God the Son drank sour wine on the cross. If instead of the crown of beauty, he wore a crown of thorns. Instead of the cup of joy, he drank the cup of wrath. Jesus experienced the eternal weight of God's displeasure so that we could experience the eternal weight of his pleasure. In Christ, we are eternally sealed as his sons and daughters. We have the riches of his mercy. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a righteousness that we did not earn ourselves. We have the spirit of God indwelling in us. Those are our circumstances in Christ. Remember them. You see, the key to happiness is not to ignore your circumstances, it's to remember them, to remember who you are and what you have in Christ. There is not a moment when God who created the galaxies and life, who orchestrated the plan of salvation before you were conceived, does not delight in you as his son and daughter. You are a child of the king. You are a co-heir with Christ. The immeasurable riches of his love are yours. Remember your circumstances. You couldn't possibly be more wealthy than you already are. You couldn't possibly be more loved than you already are. You couldn't possibly be more secure than you already are. You are a child of God. And what happens when we realize this? It frees us to actually enjoy the things of this world for what they are, gifts. Nothing more, nothing less, gifts. Gifts from God that we can enjoy, but not find our ultimate happiness in them. Laughter is great. Love, vineyards, garden, work, wine, entertainment, houses, sex, they're all great. They're all good gifts but not barometers of our happiness. When our happiness is based on the unshakable reality of who we are in Christ, we will finally be free to be content, to enjoy the simple pleasures of this life and to ultimately delight in Christ. The abundant joy and the eternal pleasures that are only found in God. Okay, how can this be true of us today? How can we begin taking steps towards this? Well, contentment in God, joy in God is a lifelong journey. This is something that we will wrestle with our whole life. It's a lifelong project. But I just wanna suggest two steps this morning. There's probably so many more things, but I'm just gonna give you two starting points. Read your Bible, confess your sins. Read your Bible, confess your sins. We have to read our Bibles. Think about the amount of overwhelming messages that you are surrounded by telling you on a daily, hourly basis that your happiness is found in the things of this world. I mean, that's what a commercial is. You're not happy because you don't have this. Like I could go into advertisement, I figured it out, right? Like that is what the world is constantly pressing on us. You're not happy because you don't have this thing in the world. But how often do we think or are deceived into thinking that 
30 minutes of hearing the Bible read and taught on a Sunday morning is going to be able to stand up against being completely surrounded by this message day in and day out. We have to read our Bibles. We have to fill our minds with truth, meditating on scripture, letting it move us in prayer, remembering the truths of who God is, what he's accomplished for us in Christ daily. When I open my Bible, here's what I pray first. I say, God, help me delight in you today. And then I read and then I pray back to God what I saw that caused me to worship him. It's so simple, but we have to be people who read our Bibles if we have any chance at being able to sift through the lies that the world tells us. Second, confess your sins. You need to confess your sins and to God in prayer. Most of us, when we sin, we pray something like this. God, I acknowledge that I sinned before you today. Please forgive me and heal me of this sin. And we say amen. Now, it's great that you are acknowledging your sin before God at all. But here's what we need to begin to do. We need to begin acknowledging not only the way we sin, but why we sin. Confess both the way and the why. We need to reflect deeply on what is motivating me to sin in this way, specifically with pleasure. I need to confess, man, this is what I was hoping to experience when I sinned this way. Here is why I pursued pleasure outside of God's design in this way. What are the lies you were believing in that moment? What are the desires of pleasure that you were trying to satisfy? Confess those to God. Now, figuring this out is hard. And it's often done best in community where you have some trusted friends helping you to reflect on why you are sinning the way you are sinning, what lies you are believing, what motivations are guiding it. Read your Bible, confess your sin. Be filled with truth and continue to identify and try to reject the lies that you're tempted to believe. Stop running the test. Find meaning and happiness in the pleasures of this world. That test will come up empty. Instead, remember the abundant joy and eternal pleasures that are found in God alone. Let's pray. Lord, we all acknowledge that this is a daily temptation for us. Instead of delighting in you, We believe the lies that our happiness is wrapped up in the things of this world and the pursuits of this world, whether it be taking life easy or whether it be achieving the life that we've always dreamed of. God, we are so susceptible to these lies. God, would you cause us to remember the greater pleasure, the greater joy that is found in you alone? God, would we seek you for our greatest happiness? God, would we delight in the fact that you experienced the cross on our behalf, securing for us the hope of eternity, that because of what we have in Christ, there is never a void. There's never a day when we are in want. We are your children. Our sins are forgiven. We have a righteousness that we didn't purchase. We have the riches of your love and mercy. God, would that produce in us 
a contentment that can be found nowhere else. Lord, we love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.